Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Film Literature and the New World Order podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. But not as always. We are not recording this on the third Monday of the month of July. We are actually talking to you on the uh, first, second Saturday of August. That's uh, not at all the right time. So my apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. If you are listening to this as it uh, drops on the 8th of August, 2015. But as you know, I was out and about and away for uh, much of last month uh, on vacation and uh, doing some things in Tokyo and all of that. So, well, we're back on track now, and there will be another episode of FL and NWO coming out in just a couple of weeks. And so there's not a lot of time to get prepared for that one, but more on that at the end of today's episode. Let's start at the beginning, talking about, well, the uh, homework that I assigned you from last time, the Daredevil television series. No, not the failed movie with that uh, CIA, uh, likely CIA operative uh, whose name thankfully escapes my mind at the moment, not the much maligned uh, movie version that came out several years ago, but the television series that is just now coming out through via Netflix. And in order to talk about that, we're going to bring up our good friend, co-host of New World Next Week, colleague, and many other things besides James Evan Pilato, New World Next Week, uh, and MediaMonarchy.com. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, dude. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, that's it. That's exactly right. And yes, uh, there is a case to be made that he has some CIA ties, which are interesting, but we'll leave that for the moment, because again, we're not talking about Ben Affleck and his maligned version of Daredevil. We are talking about the Marvel uh, uh, series, the television series, that I believe just started this year. Is that right? It, it did, and, it, and much like how Netflix does their series, they just drop it all at once. So right. all of a sudden, yeah. all, all, you know, dozen plus episodes are all there. And I basically, you know, I, I put you up to this. I suggested this. Because... <laughs> you certainly did. I, I take no blame or credit for this. <laughs> hey, I know you did one on Pink Cadillac a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I started watching this probably like a, a lot of people. You see something on Netflix, you're maybe just looking to watch something, take a break, and I'm as guilty of that and maybe shouldn't be, but... I saw that they had this new Daredevil series. I grew up reading comic books in junior high. I never actually read Daredevil, but I was kind of intrigued by it and also just sort of intrigued by the wave of new things that Netflix has been putting out just as they're sort of getting into the content creation game. And they don't have a ton of things, so the things that they put out are at least worth a, a glance. And I think at the same time they put out Daredevil, they also put out a new, a, a different original series called bloodline and i actually watched two or three episodes about that kind of hoping it would be as esoteric as its title would imply but after a few episodes in i was like oh you're all this is like family jerk stories with hidden secrets and things so i switched and started to watch daredevil and i immediately you know it's really it's really well made the the editing and the sound and all of that is really well done because the daredevil character is a blind superhero so his you know daytime life as a criminal defense lawyer matt murdoch by night he fights crime and this has been a comic for a long long time under marvel comics and again that was one i grew up seeing back in the day and so i started it not with any kind of big preconceived notions because i was never a big fan of it but i was struck at how well it was done but i was also struck by how violent it was and i'm not squeamish in a lot of ways you know i can watch a lot of stuff and grew up in the era of you know getting faces of death bootlegs and all that sort of media saturated stuff that you know that's why i call it media monarchy 
but I think I'm surprised because I I never really waded into all these Marvel movies that have been happening for the last several years. I think the story I often tell is in 1999 when I went to go see the new Star Wars movie, The Phantom Menace. Walked out so just this is all ridiculous garbage and I kind of walked away from a lot of movies in general and didn't watch any of the big sequels and the Harry Potters and the Matrixes and Lord of the Rings and the bajillion other things. I pretty much turned all that crap off. But when you make it as a bite-sized TV show, I might kind of watch it. But like I said, struck by how immediately violent it was and watched a couple of episodes. And now I'll get into, I think, why the violence is sort of an interesting thing as we as we continue this conversation. But when I started to think about this, I thought I certainly can't be the only one who thought, damn, this is pretty brutal. Hop online and an article from Reason that I actually posted to one of my own blogs, Navigating Netflix, how Netflix's new Daredevil series makes torture into a virtue. And I'll just read you just a couple of brief bits from this so we can kind of get on the page of where we are about this show. The Daredevil series on Netflix is about how one man alone and with right in his heart can change the city for the better using only one weapon torture. Politically, the Daredevil series, based on the long-running Marvel comic about a blind superhero whose alter ego is a lawyer named Matt Murdock, is a casual mess, a melange of half-digested, not especially coherent, liberal and conservative talking points thrown together almost at random. The series' working-class Hispanics living in rent-controlled apartments under threat from evil developers is a basic lefty meme. The all-consuming corruption of government institutions, from politicians to police, is borrowed from libertarian or right-wing distrust of government. The kingpin, the powerful crime boss and one of the daredevil's arch-enemies, is a villain to liberals because he's super rich. He's a villain to conservatives because he's a dreamy and hypocritical help-the-poor idealist. In short, there's a reason for people of every political persuasion to be flattered or irritated as long as no one thinks about it too hard. But amidst the ideological confusion, the one consistent value is torture. To unravel the kingpin's web of corruption, Daredevil resorts again and again to threats and violent interrogation. Now, James, I have to ask you, since I sort of put this on your plate what did you think in watching these? You know, you bring out such an interesting point there with the hyper-violence of the series and the fact that torture is one of the techniques that uh, that Daredevil resorts to in his quest to, you know, help the people of Hell's Kitchen. And it's not something that I explicitly or consciously picked up on. I only made it through the first three episodes of the series, so perhaps I haven't made it far enough in to, to really pick up on that theme overall. But I do recall from the third episode where there is uh, a scene where one of the, the henchmen, the thugs, is basically tied up and, yes, being tortured uh, by Daredevil. And then in the end, he ends up throwing him off the roof, which... I don't really know. I, I, like yourself, I, I grew up reading comic books, but never Daredevil, so I don't know the the old the, the storylines of the original Daredevil comics. But from what I understand, in the comic book version, in the original comics, uh, that uh, uh, that person who he throws off the roof um, ends up getting paralyzed or something like that. Apparently, in this series, he ends up going into a coma or something. Maybe there's some significance to to the different ways that they deal with this. But long story short, I mean, it is very brutally violent and it does um it, it certainly does raise those questions about who the audience is cheering for and why they are cheering for it and i'm not sure i have a pat answer for that again i'm only three episodes in but i think it certainly could be 
the the trajectory that I've seen from the first three episodes certainly could be similar to something like a 24, which of course softened up the public imagination for torture in general, so that now you have those opinion polls showing that uh, large numbers of Americans do support torture and do believe that it's an effective tactic against terrorists in the war on terror, and the thing that I specifically and explicitly noted about Daredevil is that it plays on very populist memes. And it's interesting that Reason article is talking about the ways that, you know, liberals and conservatives can both find something to love and uh, about this and hate about the villain and all of that, because it is, certainly does have those sort of populist uh, tendencies. And I think one of the most dangerous that this Daredevil series starts to unleash is the vigilante idea, which is the idea, you know, ultimately, I, we, we all have that feeling, oh, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and the police can't keep things in line. We, you know, what we need is some hero to come along and save the day. And of course, he's going to have to kick butt and, and uh, take no prisoners and torture or do whatever he has to do, because that's the only way we can imagine justice working in the world. And uh, that's, a, I think, when you start to play on that idea and play on people's psychological uh, desire for that type of law and order, quote-unquote, I think it can unleash some pretty potentially dark forces. And that's, you know, that's one of the propagandistic aspects of this that I'm a little bit concerned about. Well, and I think you almost bring up a point that I, I think I was kind of hinting at on, on our most recent Neural Next Week as we see a bunch of memes kind of swirling around. The one I'm specifically kind of talking about is the Cecil the Lion how, you know, the one event, if given enough attention, whips a bunch of people into a frenzy to where they're calling for a guy's death. And there's never, you know, no jury, no trial, no nothing. You're basically perceived to be a bad guy and the digital pitchforks are going to come to you and they're going to turn into real pitchforks in a lot of ways. But that's probably some other whole kind of conversation. But on the Reason article, the comment section is pretty big and, of course, annoying like a lot of comment fields but one of them specifically says jack bauer begets daredevil as chris kyle begets dot 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 question mark referring of course to our our hero sniper but one of the other comments also notes superhero stories are always state propaganda so i think you can look at it that way and i've got a, a few links actually that we can include in the show notes i'll throw to you one that maybe has a better take in some ways or at least a more informed take about the character we're talking about of daredevil there's an article on comicbook.com called daredevil torture and the importance of context and i won't really get into all of that but it has a lot more screen grabs of frames from the daredevil comic from the past that kind of shows some of these issues in some of these ways where he actually even says you know i'm not god i'm not the law and i'm not a murderer where even then the police commissioner is saying, well, if you don't kill this guy, he's just going to come back and kill, and then it'll be your fault. So it does leave it a little more open-ended, so I think a, a take from comic book people is probably in order here, James. But I think the larger thing that this really showed me, and it was something that I've, that I've known about, because it sort of exists in the big pop culture stew, and that's Marvel Comics got bought by Disney. Do you know this whole Not story? really, no, no. So back in 2009, actually, it officially happened, and even the New York Times article at the, at the, at the time, Disney swoops into action buying Marvel for $4 billion. Marvel, through those previous years, had pretty much stumbled, and I think were actually held by another company, and again, all that information's in these business articles. 
But they there was a big, huge comic book boom in the 90s, and it was kind of a bubble, and it was almost kind of a speculative bubble. And this was kind of the part that I grew up in comics, and maybe people will remember this. It got kind of pumped into this thing where it was all special covers and glow-in-the-dark and special editions, and you were supposed to buy all these things because they were going to be worth money later. And little kids, of course, we hadn't figured out that anything they say, hey, this is going to be worth a lot of money later, is not going to be worth a lot of money later. It's the things you don't know about that are going to be worth <laughs> money later. It's kind of an early important lesson, but I think I also, at the same time that I felt like I was getting scammed out of my money, I think I also realized I didn't like the stories all that much, whether it was you know Marvel superhero stuff or even some of the DC stuff. And at the time, I think that's when I started to read some of the, you know, mature readers comics. And that's when I got into, you know, Sandman and Hellblazer and and those kind of comics for the remaining several years that I would continue to read them before I would just be full on music all the way once the late 90s kind of rolled around. And even once I got to college, you don't have money to buy comic books. But I knew that through those years and after that bubble burst, and a lot of this was just because of lots of other bubbles burst as well, whether it was happening in music or film or anything, Marvel was blown out. They got kind of tossed around a little bit. But ultimately, Disney swoops in and buys Marvel for $4 billion. That must mean something because that's a hell of a lot of money for what some people would go, oh, the funny books. But I think the interesting thing that's happened, and I noticed it just as I would glance at advertisements or see what people were going to the movies to see or look at the movie marquee. Over the last couple of years, I was like, man, Marvel sure is putting out a bunch of movies. And it's basically that Disney, you know, just financially speaking, bought up these properties and have turned them into super big cash cows. And they're putting new superhero movies in theaters almost every month. And so almost like comic books themselves, they're coming out pretty steadily and they're making bajillions of dollars. So when I know that those are super duper popular and then I watch this Daredevil TV show, it strikes me, oh, this is how violent a lot of these things are. And I'm sure they tweak them just to kind of get the PG-13 rating, but that's a whole other BS area anyway with sex versus violence. But that's what struck me. When seeing this TV show, it let me kind of get the glimpse of what was going on in all these movies that millions of people have been flocking to for years. And I think it comes down to this. These Marvel movies are a kind of post-9-11 Warhawk wet dream. It's all, you know, kind of governments are inferior. You got to give up your, you know, your individual sovereignty so we can work, you know, collectivistly with, you know, military so we can go and beat the, you know, those quote unquote aliens, whatever those aliens might be. Right. So yeah. That's really, I think, kind of struck me as I was just trying to watch a couple of TV shows. You know, that's such an important point. It's the the Tony Stark working in collaboration with the Department of Defense is going to save the universe. And uh, isn't it so cool? And I think you're, I mean, you're exactly right to point that out and to point out the propagandistic value of comic books, which is not, certainly not a new idea. I think people, well, I hope people do know the uh, the history of propaganda uh, comics and how they, they were explicitly used for such purposes, perhaps most obviously in World War II, where, of course, Captain America went to fight Hitler and all of that kind of stuff, where it was just explicitly these uh, these comic book characters were being teamed up and, and used to, to basically sell war and 
and to rally uh, rally support in, in the homeland and condition the children and all of that kind of stuff. But I think obviously that never really went away. And and there's an interesting actually even Wikipedia has an interesting breakdown of some of the more blatant um, connections between. For example, not only the the World War II propaganda or the Korean propaganda, but uh, there's things like Grenada, the Rescued from Rape and Slavery, which was a 14-page comic published in 1984 by the Central Intelligence Agency, but it was, of course, not uh, advertised as being a CIA publication. It was credited to something called the Victims of International Communist Emissaries, but it was a CIA publication and, and things like that. Vice is that? Victims of international. Ah, uh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, voice, voice. Oh, voice. V- ah. Victims of internet. Yeah. I mean, they apparently they don't know the the conventions of uh, acronyms. But anyway, yes. So I mean, again, the 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 connections there shouldn't be surprising. Um, but here's an interesting story that caught my attention last year, which kind of puts this out on the table. And it quite explicitly ties in with what you're saying, and I think quite rightly, about the sort of this new resurgence of Marvel and and DC characters in in the movies and how it's selling this kind of post-9-11 violence porn. Um, Well, the, the Moscow Times had a report last year, Russia investigating Marvel comic books as propaganda of violence. And it says, a Russian state company that distributes printed publications has asked the federal media watchdog in Russia to investigate Marvel comic books for denigrating Soviet symbols and amounting to propaganda of a cult of violence and uh, it's basically talking about how it these book uh, comic books promote violence and cruelty and all of this and of course you uh, got a lot of um, news outlets in the west covering this at the time saying oh look at those hypocritical russians as if they are such peace-loving people and all of that and you know look at what's going on in ukraine and all of that spin but i think the underlying point is well taken um that yes these comic books really are propaganda of violence they really do glorify it and i think it can be done sort of responsibly in a way that makes people think about the 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 the, the moral lessons and the moral gravity of what's being done and you know and vigilantism and and does that really work and all of that kind of thing and i think we probably for people like myself and yourself who got out of the comic book uh propaganda matrix uh, decades ago that's probably more of the type of storyline that we remember but i think you're what you're saying is interesting that um now that this entirely new you know uh, marvel uh, movie industry is forming it really is introducing not just introducing a whole new uh, generation to these ideas but really in a particular post 9-11 context and I, I, I of course a lot of people have talked about that in regards to the Batman reboot uh, franchise and the sort of post 9-11 world that it was portraying but I think it's interesting to look at how all of these comic books are are doing this and I guess I don't know what the sort of uh, it, what the answer to this is per se because unfortunately comic books and comic things of comic nature are just inherently appealing to a lot of young people. Of course, young boys love to read these types of things and get stewed and soaked in these ideas and memes that are be- being put out there. Um, and it's done in such a glossy and slick way. I mean, it is, it is uh, for mindless popcorn entertainment, I mean, it is eye candy and it is interesting to watch. It's very well shot, this Daredevil series. Um, so it's extremely well done propaganda. And I guess there's a question of, is there anything that can be done to raise awareness of these issues in a way that hopefully brings up 
deflector shields for young people who are getting caught in this? I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to this conversation who have children or nephews or what have you who are at that age, that tender ripe age that they're likely to be sucked up into this. What what can we sort of do to, to counteract the, the propaganda of violence that these comic books are representing? I You know, I think making... I think in a lot of ways it's sort of making shows and being involved in it like this where, yeah, we'll watch this, but let's do it in a thoughtful way. And just as you can kind of say, hey, you know, I'll give you the homework, you know, for next episode. I think if we can kind of do and that's that's really the idea, you know, that that's why I think I, that's why I love doing film literature, New World Order, because it's like the the group within the tragedy and hope community navigating Netflix. It's that idea of. You know, we can watch these things, but let's do it in a thoughtful way. And I think it's much like we probably would have wished, you know, parents, you know, instead of taking records from us, <laughs> would have maybe sat down and listened to it with us and said, here's why I don't like this or, or those kinds of things instead of just that looks dirty and I'm going to take that away. And that happened to me as a kid growing up. So that informs probably a lot of my my own way. But I think it going at it thoughtfully and I think having ways that show these are being used as propaganda because we can prove that our tax dollars and so many other dollars go from the military to expressly make these kinds of shows and video games and all those things. I'll throw in a link from Spy Culture, U.S. Army influence on Hollywood. They've actually got documents from 2010 to 2015 about all the ways the U.S. Army has all these projects they're working on and Hollywood sounds like a big hoity-toity thing, but you boil it down and it's still stupid-ass reality shows and every kind of little bit of media that the military entertainment industrial complex has kind of gotten involved in. So I think when you can help expose it, that helps kind of stem the tide, I think, in a lot of ways. And hopefully, just like people make the right decisions once they learn their food was poison, that when they're rolling into a movie theater, they're going to go, yeah, maybe let's do something else or let's see something else. Um... And might I just interject, I think perhaps, uh, keeping all of that in mind, perhaps it's also fruitful, beneficial, not to try to talk down to people who are interested or involved in this kind of propaganda matrix, because, again, I think that's a way of putting people off of this. I think more exploratory, opening up for discussion, talking about the, the, the demonstrable propaganda links between uh, the, the comic book companies and the uh, Hollywood complex and uh, the, the Pentagon and the CIA and these types of things, these historical linkages, opening them up as questions and uh, points for exploration rather than a lecture is probably going to be more effective when you're trying to, to, uh, to, to expose some of this to people. Because I'm pretty sure in some of these films, you know, in Thor and Captain America and all these, I think they have elements within the storylines that were this 10 years earlier, James, we would be singing its praises because, oh man, they're talking about false flag terrorism or they're exposing the U.S. government's connection to Nazis. These elements, I think, are in there, but now that we're so kind of, you know, we are so now 15 years post 9-11 – that it's not a novelty and they're not sneaking it in there like people were maybe getting away with it a decade plus ago. And trutherism basically slipping into mainstream media. I think that's kind of over and done with and it's now been absorbed. And that's why, you know, Kanye and TV shows can joke about the Illuminati because it's all sort of out there and it's all just a big 
gigantic mess. Yes, but on that note, uh, well, before we get to that, I should just point out that, again, for people who don't know, there is a direct link between the Pentagon and Marvel Studios, the the company that puts out the big blockbuster movies, and uh, that link was supposedly broken, I believe, earlier this year. Basically, the Pentagon has supposedly broken its link with Marvel Studios because of the unreality of the Avengers-type movies, but I, there was... I, I haven't seen it yet. Apparently, what is it, Captain America Winter Soldier, or whatever the most recent Captain America one was, was apparently an interesting uh, expose, more so than propaganda, so perhaps there is some genuine um, exposure of some sort of truth going on through these movies that that rankled the Pentagon in the wrong way. Maybe that's all just a diversion. But anyway, uh, uh, on the note of trutherism in, in these types of productions... Uh, when I was watching this series, the first episode contains that 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 uh, storyline about the contractor that uh, received all of these contracts in the wake of 9/11 for the 9/11 cleanup and reconstruction. And I was assuming, I was assuming, a that was going to be sort of more of an overarching sort of plot, plot line. I'm again, I'm only up to th- episode three, but it hasn't returned at this point. But I, b, I thought this was probably why. Oh, this is why James wants to talk about this. But uh, I thought that was an, at any rate, it's an interesting thing to throw in there. And maybe it's just like one of those things, like in the uh, there was that James Bond movie where they were talking about uh, um, uh, 9/11 in a sort of false flaggy way. I can't even remember the details of it because I don't really watch the Bond movies, but there's a, a lot of those kind of references that are thrown in years later that yep. just kind of normalize it. Like, oh yeah, okay, it was a big boondog. A lot of people made a lot of money off of 9-11 and there you go. And just sort of throwing it out there. I don't know if that's if that's bringing it to people's attention in a way that will make them think about it or bringing it out in a way that will make just sort of normalize people to the idea. But I thought that was an interesting little plot line to have in there. Absolutely. And I think that was what I was referring to, the uh, Winter Soldier. I think I picked up on some of that. I was probably still producing at Ground Zero when that film came out. So I think that was probably something we discussed on there. I heard just a little bit about it. But, you know, I think there's a lot of other areas worthy of of exploration. And I think these kind of topics are fun because different people are going to pick up on different areas. And there are people going, why haven't you talked about (laughs) Disney that bought Marvel? Disney's whole mission is to sort of subvert your childhood. And that is, that's a valid uh, other area of, of pursuit. I think what strikes me again about this, and you did mention DC, that was always the thing growing up. I mean, did you, did you kind of catch this as well? DC was the darker branch of comics and Marvel had a little bit more of, you know, Spider-Man was much more of an everyman, not like some, you know, dark, tortured vigilante kind of guy. Yeah lives in a cave or some space right, alien superman right, from, right, from right, a right. planet but it seems like disney has made marvel out dark dc yeah well the words gritty reboot are used uh, <laughs> a little too much for my taste in this era but certainly that is the formula for hollywood success seemingly um if box office numbers are anything to go by and i guess it's just a question of who can go for the grittier reboot is it batman or is it uh uh, daredevil or what have you and uh, they, I think they just are playing a game of one-upsmanship and unfortunately the public seems to be continuing to buy it both literally and figur- figuratively they do and these movies I mean the movies the movies sell tickets they break even they make money and of course they make even more money when they go worldwide so they probably aren't going to go away anytime soon but I just every week as I look it's like these are commercials for a sort of militarized collectivist future you know now playing Yes, 
Yes, it absolutely is. Well, hmm. Well, now, given that I've only made it up to episode three, uh, or the end of episode three of the series, is it worth me continuing on, do you think? Well, I haven't actually gone all the way. I think I'm up to probably episode nine or so myself, episode nine called Speak of the Devil. And it is, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't know that I would say, yes, you've got to watch all of it. Now, maybe if I watch all 13 episodes, we can come back and say, yes, it all comes together. And here are the parts we could have mentioned had we gone through the whole thing. But I think something like this in some ways, again, we're not exactly talking about fine art or literature in some ways this is kind of a comic you and i are picking up and flipping open and and hopefully discussing and pointing out some of the interesting areas and pointing out who's behind what because when i look at you know the guy who directed or, or created this sort of gritty reboot for for netflix i don't see any of the typical like oh this guy's got a creepy background and he's from this military family or yale he basically i mean he made he's the guy who made cloverfield that was his first big feature that he wrote that kind of made him big. And then he also made Cabin in the Woods. Both films are actually, you know, pretty critically acclaimed. Cabin in the Woods, I think, is, is actually worthy of discussion and has been discussed on other sort of esoteric media sites, probably Vigilant Citizen and, and lots of other sites. So I think in some ways this is a little bit of a, like a trashy or popcorn thing that has darker implications, James. And I think the, the links that we can throw in and, you know, you read the New York Times about you know, Disney spending $4 billion, you know, they're not doing it for nothing. No, they certainly aren't. And it's not just a monetary greed, I think, at play. As you say, Disney is there to subvert our childhoods. And I think that is something that I'll have to cover more explicitly in a future edition of FLNWO. But for now, I'd like to thank you for sort of popping my bubble of ignorance when it comes to these uh, Marvel uh, productions, because they are such a pop cultural phenomenon that we have to deal with them in some way. And I'm sure there will be people in the crowd who are much more well-versed on these and uh, probably bigger fans of the, the comic books in question who can probably fill us in on some of them, the uh, more specific details. But I'm glad, again, that you popped the, the bubble of ignorance on this subject, because it was something that really struck me when I was back in Canada recently. I was uh, I, I was staying at a hotel once where, where there was some uh, CNN and BBC and that kind of thing, and it really reminded me of just how propagandistic it is, because I really don't watch those things. I see little clips online, but I don't watch news networks like that, and it is it is good to be reminded just how incredibly it's 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 just like this pr propaganda tsunami that just is striking you every day and and for people who live in that i just shudder to think of the way they're being conditioned so for people who are living through this age of marvel comics domination of the entertainment sphere i'm sure that there is a whole range of things to be discussed anyway i think uh, i think that's just about it from my side is there anything else that you want to cover with regards to this i would just say that's what's that's what's nice about on demand and the ability to make an informed decision and decide I'm going to sit down and watch this because I've already armed myself with the knowledge of what this is about and what I'm going to watch. You can watch it with a little more forethought. And that's the difference between then just getting the 24 seven advertisement barrage. And that's the thing because they both work together. You get the media and then you get the advertisements and they both kind of dovetail together. I don't know. My brain is always, I can't, I could never, I'm, I'm always still surprised when I hear a car go down the road and I hear commercials coming out of it. Hmm. It's day and age. The millions of choices. you I mean, you can be listening to any number of crappy music if you want, but listening to ads, you know, that, that's a area too. But I think having, having Netflix and having on-demand things 
makes it a little easier to make these in kind of informed decisions and you can kind of stop and turn away and, and not watch the rest of it. And it's not this this bilge kind of constantly coming into your house. My last note that I had and you hit it exactly is that I said, maybe the comments will have more in-depth analysis. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hopefully there will be people out there who did read the daredevil comic and who who can take this hopefully further and and point out areas that we haven't missed right yes well that's the beauty of the collaborative learning and let me just point out the other option when it comes to the beauty of these on-demand sort services and things is that you can choose not to start watching it at all if you don't want to that's always an option so <laughs> there you go all right well we've covered the bases there and before i let you go uh i think there are some interesting developments coming along in terms of uh, the media monarchy world is there anything you'd like to let the listeners know about or will we start <laughs> well, to i i think i almost even kind of said when i mentioned navigating netflix watch out i might make a whole hell of a lot more media because i actually resigned from my commercial radio job it just started Yay. too much of my life and i think this hits exactly kind of what we're talking about i was listening to commercials all the time I mean, I have, you know, pretty good ability. I can, I can, because I was running the board, I can literally turn them down in my headphones as I did. But still, it's that, it, it just kind of infected my life in a lot of ways. But I made a lot of great connections and got a lot of great ideas. And I realized the only thing that's really going to make me happy is giving Media Monarchy a full-on go. And so I basically kind of, I don't know if circling the wagons is the right way, but I've got, I'm with my web guy. I'm trying to corral a couple of other people to basically do a complete kind of overhaul of the media monarchy kingdom, solidify everything back down to mediamonarchy.com and do a lot more media, a lot more videos, a lot more media criticism. So whether that is, you know, film and television and a lot more music. And I think that's the push that I'm going to kind of go for as media monarchies. 10th anniversary is actually September 11th, 2015. That's awesome. I'm very much looking forward to it. And if nothing else, if you only brought back the weekly podcast, that would be a godsend for me because it was such a valuable resource for me week after week with all of those great stories. So I'm looking forward to whatever comes of this uh, new iteration, this gritty reboot of Media Monarchy. <laughs> but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, James, thank you again for your time. Thanks for bringing this to the table. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure. All right, friends, that's going to do it for, well, I was going to say this month's edition of Film Literature in the New World Order, but actually there's going to be another edition very soon, actually. Before you before you know it, there will be a new edition of this podcast out. So I will give you your homework reading assignment for next time, and you'll have to read quickly in order to make it for next podcast. But as always, let's just go through some of the comments that were left on the previous edition of this podcast, number 27, The Library of Babel by... Uh, Jorge Luis Borges, and there were quite a few interesting comments. I started the conversation off by linking to a piece by James Grummelman uh, about uh, information policy for the Library of Babel, adding some interesting points to that whole concept, and Octium responded by saying that if we take the more search engines, the better to its logical extreme, we'd have everyone setting up their own search engine, which share results with everyone else. And the obvious problem with that idea is that the average person does not have the same resources as a corporation like uh, Google. However, there is at least one open source solution called Yacy, Yacy, Y-A-C-Y, that implements a peer-to-peer -peer distributed search engine of which your computer becomes part of once you install the application. I would not say that it passes the co competency test as Bookman yet. However, the concept looks promising, 
and it should improve if more people participate. Well, that's an interesting little idea. I hadn't heard of that before, so thanks for bringing it to our attention. And if anyone is participating in that peer-to-peer search engine and has any uh, feedback on it, I'd be interested to hear it. Uh, We had a comment in, for example, from JM talking about some rather esoteric parts, uh, the animal communicator and uh, cell talk and... uh, and light uh, possible scientist experiences uh, ebook and many other links in there besides that you can read through. Uh, we had F. Uh, Garcia Gonzalo bringing to our attention a an interesting clip from an interview on Spanish television in 1976, where Bohr has stated, "I am certainly not a nationalist, a Peronist, or a communist. Let's just say I am an individual, a modest anarchist in the Spencer tradition. I believe in the individual." not the state. And apparently this was published on Mises Hispano. So uh, ex- uh, that's excellent. I, I had no idea that, that was the case. I had no idea about Borges's uh, political inclinations. Interesting to hear about. I guess I'll have to research more into that. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. Uh, again, lots of different comments in from a lot of different people. Um, for example, William York uh, talking about how he uh, appreciates Borges and anyone else who does so is recommended to check out Stanislaw Lem's book, A Perfect Vacuum, uh, which I have not done so yet myself, but I am looking forward to. Thank you for the recommendation. The always interesting Steve Kelly 911 has a very, 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 very long comment uh, in which he starts by saying uh, this story actually gets to the heart of deliberate technocratic social engineering and how the Library of Babel can become a customized and tailored uh, prison for each individual mind. Kind of like a you-are-what-you-eat scenario where your favorite food is deliberately fed to you and an algorithm works out the most effective route possible to get you psychologically from point A to point Z by introducing 5% new and different forbidden fruit that it attempts to tempt tempt you with through profiling. Point Z is point zombie, where you are disengaged from politics and immersed into pure materialism or cultish behavior, such as the climate action protesters who laugh at you when you ask them what a carbon derivative is. And uh, again, this comment is very, very long, so I'll let you read through, but some interesting ideas and parallels and uh, thoughts uh, brought out in that comment. And uh, also Philip had an interesting point where he pointed out that the six-sided room is the benzene ring, which is symbolic of Earth's carbon-based life forms. And then the books with their systematically inscribed but generally incomprehensible text is our DNA and the DNA of all other living things. And some books, like Cells of Our Body, may be destroyed, but the DNA itself lives on in other books and cells. An interesting idea. Thank you for bringing that idea to the table. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of ideas in that story, as I'm sure you all recognized. So... Well, given the type of literary whiplash that we're prone to here on the podcast, we were reading Borges last month, we were watching the Daredevil television series for this month, and, uh, well, what's coming up next? Well, on the third Monday of August, uh, we're going to be reviewing A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. So, yes, once again, literary whiplash here on the podcast, but uh, one of my favorite writers, so it will be a very interesting discussion, I have no doubt. I hope you'll be there to join me for it. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support.